Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Recorded live. Hey, everybody. This is Lisa with Charismatic Women. We are doing sacred self-care. Um, we have today Janet, Lisa, Christina is in the... She's here, but muted because she's at work. So we didn't get the call in last week because I had technical difficulties. So we are doing our call this week about the piece that I shared from... Um, the woman who had, I think, such an incredibly compelling story about hate. And her story, I I didn't even know the whole background with the story. What I know about her is she has one of the most beautiful, eloquent, I would say incredibly well curated lives of anyone I ever, anyone I've ever met. Like, she has standards for everything that creates a way of being for her that is really, really remarkable. And I, I mean, I knew that, I knew that her husband had died, her first husband had passed away, and I knew she'd had some issues with eating, but I wasn't aware for the longest time how her issues around food ultimately evolved into her willingness, her ability, her dedication and commitment to creating this really, really extraordinary life. And I mean, the thing about her is at at first glance, on the surface and under the surface, actually, it's, it's like a magazine spread. It's beautiful and it's very, very satisfying. I don't know. I mean, she just strikes me as somebody who has a specialty in being able to create environments and things around her, and when I mean environments, I mean that in a very broad term, that are spectacular. So I'm going to, just for the sake of kind of making sure that everybody who listens to the archive is up to date, share the story really quickly, and then we can kind of unpack what happened with her. Is that okay? Are you guys good with that? I'm good. Okay. So... And and I think that we're familiar with this woman. I mean, whether we've been her or not, like we all know that girl from high school. She was she was the happy one, like the cheerful one, the sort of bright and smiley, and I don't know that really really bubbly, vivacious personality. But she was heavier than almost all of her friends. I mean, she hung out in cheerleader circles with, you know, football players and what have you, a popular girl, really. But she was, as she refers to it now, which is a term that I hate, always kind of the fat friend. And cute, I mean, by all definitions, really, really cute. But never particularly, she didn't ever see herself as desirable. 
And she did have a boyfriend or two in high school, but it was never really very serious. I mean, she always just felt like the less popular of the popular ones in a circle of people where everybody met a certain standard or ideal for beauty and body weight that she did not. Um, and she And she knew what she was doing. Like, she got some pressure from her family internally, particularly from her mother, that she needed to lose some weight. Her mother was very, very heavily focused on pretty consistently messaging her that her value as a woman was compromised as long as she was heavy and was very, very consistently encouraging her to go on a diet or do something different. And she would go on diets occasionally, and she would go through the motions of looking like she was trying to lose weight, but she was, as I said in the story, or she said in the story, awake many, many nights, often, almost every night, standing in front of the refrigerator, binge eating at night because she was terrified to go to sleep, really dealing with some very profound PTSD-related issues and was not necessarily... in. She didn't have an awareness that she was using food to be numb. She had an awareness that she was eating to stay awake. And she was kind of aware, I think even at that age, that the extra little bit of body weight made her less appealing to some of the, to some of the boys and some of the men. And she was secretly okay with that, even though her mother was constantly warning her that she wasn't going to be quite as valuable. And... So when she went away to college, which she did very quickly, like the minute she graduated from high school, moved out of town, went away to college, it was fairly, it was soon. I mean, within a couple of months, she met the man that she was going to marry, and he was spectacular, spectacular. Like this man was wildly creative and incredibly passionate and adored her and totally didn't see her body weight as a thing. Like, he just saw her as a beautiful human, and they fell head over heels in love with each other. And it was, by all accounts, the love story of a lifetime. And her relationship with him allowed her, in some really, really profound ways, to do a lot of healing from her childhood. I mean, I don't know for sure that she healed it. If She just it wasn't important to her anymore. Like she just sort of exercised it for the moment. And they had an amazing relationship. And as soon as they graduated from college, she graduated from college with some sort of degree in artistic design. Um, He graduated with some sort of degree in computer science, something. They immediately left the Midwest, went across country, and set up household in Monterey Bay, California, which had always been a dream of hers, actually. She had seen pictures of Monterey on postcards and what have you. She'd sort of fantasized about it. When he said, where's any place she'd want to live, that was the first kind of obscure thought that came to her mind, and they did it. And he had a great job, and life was amazing. And they had sort of this very fantasy-esque kind of, early married life. I mean, when she talks about walking the beach every morning and sitting on the cliffs and having these amazing, amazing, like, picnics and all the time they spent together, it was fantastic, like, really, really, really good. 
and he was making good money. So when she came up with this notion that she might want to open her own pastry shop or bakery, they figured they could afford it, and they were talking a lot about how they would fit that around having a family, which they both really wanted. And it happened. And she she said that she was he was late, not terribly, terribly late, but later than she had expected him to be, but not even so late that she had called his cell phone. Like, she hadn't even checked. She wasn't, there was no real alarm. She wasn't checking up on him. And there was a knock on the door, and it was the California State Patrol. And he had been in an accident. I mean, it was a single car accident, probably driving too fast. His car had slipped off the road, and he had died on the scene at a car accident. And so she did what she's always done, which was eat. And, you know, she said that for the first month after the accident, the only thing that she remembered was eating at night and going to his funeral, that everything else was a wash, like a complete blur. And she was a million miles away from her home, her family, her friends for the most part. She quit her job at her bakery. She didn't even actually quit. She just didn't go back because she couldn't. She wasn't really functioning. She had a few days where his family was around and they cleared out. And the next thing she kind of even consciously remembers was sitting on that beach holding a check for a lot of money. They had just, I mean, in the process of started planning for a family, they had fairly recently actually upped his life insurance at work. Um, they, you know, they'd started to think about those long-term financial things, and fortunately or unfortunately, it paid because overnight she was a multimillionaire. And the only thing she knew was that she didn't want to stay where she was. She couldn't go home. She didn't want to be back in the Midwest. And she really did, out of some sort of fangirl, twisted obsession with eat, pray, and love, decide that she would go to culinary school in Italy. And didn't speak Italian. She just didn't. I mean, she had a passport. She'd never used it. She found a school that supposedly had some English-speaking options, like I guess there are culinary schools for foreigners in Italy, and she found one that she thought was going to work, and within a couple of weeks, she was on an airplane, and there was nothing to stop her, because she had no family, no responsibilities, no nothing, and when she got there, realized that the school didn't really accommodate foreigners. Her... First term in, uh, her first term instructor was a horrible human who hated Americans and hated her. And she, in the beginning, she routinely cried during class. And the more she cried, the more he picked on her. He called her piggy. He was relentless, relentlessly almost abusive. Maybe not even almost abusive. He was abusive to her verbally and emotionally, and she was in no place to handle it. She got to a point where she wasn't crying in class anymore, but she would sob. You know, she would just start sobbing when she was walking back to her little apartment after class and cried and cried and wasn't even sure. I mean, she'd kind of even forgotten what she was crying about. I mean, she knew she was missing her husband terribly, 
But she just cried because that was kind of her way of being. And she went to class one day and she said it was the last, you know, he, she just couldn't take it anymore. And he referred to her as Piggy. And she just straight up decided she was going to stop eating. Like she just, it was an act of subversiveness. I like that word and Janet uses a lot. I mean, it was a subversive act where she pretty much decided that she was going to be anorexic. I mean, that was the decision that she made. Except here she was in culinary school. So she gave herself like a little leverage and said, I'm not going to eat, but I will taste. I will taste what I'm working on enough that I can stay here and do this work and, and finish what I'm doing here. I have to at least taste. So the only time she ate at all, anything, was when she was tasting food in class. And realized very quickly, once she quit eating <laughs> the way she had been, that the story that she had told herself about how much she loved food wasn't true because she'd never really tasted it that she didn't know what food she loved or didn't love. She had never had a relationship with taste and food at all and found herself, I don't know, 100 pounds potentially overweight at culinary school in Italy tasting food for the first time ever. And what it taught her really was the distinction between what she did habitually versus what actually pleased her. And she started navigating this territory where she only ate foods that absolutely positively <laughs> delighted her. So through this process, she met another amazing man, which was not at all what was on her agenda. I mean, as you might imagine, her thought was that she would never love again. She wasn't looking. She wasn't in the mood. But she met him. And they did go home, like I talked about in the story, to meet her parents. And it was weird. And she felt that pull back towards being that older version of herself. And it was very, very strong. And after that trip, she never went back. She still hasn't been back to the Midwest. She hasn't seen her parents once. They went back to France. They married. And they are now in Monterey. And I suspect baby is coming very soon. I mean, very, very, very pregnant. And at this point, weighs less by a lot, by like 70 pounds than she did at her heaviest weight when she was in Italy. And healthy. I mean, doctor says it's good. Everybody's happy. She's not even unhealthy, low weight for being pregnant. And her life is amazing because she translated that skill that she learned in culinary school of I will only we eat will only put in my mouth and swallow what is extraordinary and fantastic to almost every other element of her life, her decision-making. I mean, the sheets have to be that fantastic. The, her clothes, not expensive. None of this is necessarily expensive, but, you know, her clothes need to feel that fantastic. Her friendships and relationships have to feel that amazing. She is uncompromising in her taste. And I don't know if I ever really thought about, like, taste that way. Like, we talk about taste as sort of a general thing beyond food. But I don't know if I ever thought about what it meant to be uncompromising in your taste. 
that way. So I'm going to toss this over to you guys, kind of go around the horn on this. And Chris, I don't know. I'll call on you last, and if you can if you can unmute and jump in, that would be great. But first I want to talk about the food aspect of it, and then I want to do another round on sort of this larger life approach of being that discriminating and that uncompromising when it comes to taste. So, Janet, you are in. You are up. <laughs> well, when I when I read the story, I was I just thought it was incredibly inspiring, and I, I totally got it. Um, uh, and it's been interesting because uh, I, my own relationship with food, <clears throat> pardon me, there have been some wrinkles with it, <laughs> I could say. Um, I've been through, you know, every set of rules about food. Well, for years and years and years, you know, there, there were all the different rules about food, which I tried to abide by. And then I just gave up and thought, screw it, I'll just eat what I like. But so when, and, and I really thought I was doing that. And when I read, the, the thing about her story that really lit me up was the comment she made that she thought she was eating because she liked food and she didn't realise until that experience in Italy that she wasn't. And I realised, because I've, I've been through something of a similar revelation. My husband and I have started a, a, a new eating, new to us eating plan, which basically it's not paleo, but it avoids processed um, carbs in order to um, reduce the number of insulin spikes that our systems get. Because uh, we've got some indicators that insulin spikes aren't good for, I mean, they're not good for anybody, but they're not good for us particularly. So, and, and during the course of that, we found ourselves eating things that, well, we were having things like, we were having, um, you know, things with Mexican flavours for breakfast, which is not something either of us grew up with. And it's, we like Mexican food, but... For breakfast, it was just weird. And and we were both kind of forcing the, the point a little. Not a lot, but we weren't loving it. And then um, I think it was after reading the story, I just thought, this is crazy. I, I can do an adaptation of this where we both get to eat what we really like. I, I know my husband's taste pretty well by now. I've been cooking for him for 20-something years. And um, the idea of kind of managing my food intake in a more friendly way, being kinder to my body and making sure that I actually enjoy the food, that I like the flavours, that just has me so excited. <laughs> I like that I like that combination. That really works for me. So this is kind of like the the final but very important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I mean it's it's I've done that. I mean, I did one full year of eating raw vegan, and some of the food was great. I won't lie. I mean, there's an art to that, and I was mm. the art. Chris can testify. Like, I'm good at it. If you want somebody to prepare you an amazing raw food meal, you're gonna call me because I I rock that out. But I spent mm -hmm. twelve full months telling myself I loved all the food. Like, <laughs> I, I loved yeah. some of the food. But I had a very strong internal dialogue about how this was the best food I'd ever eaten. Some of it was good, but it wasn't true. And I've done that at multiple points during my life where it's like I, I love the food when really I was eating for lots of reasons other than that love of the essence of what food is and the flavors and the experience of the food. It's, 
you, I could get really delusional. Yeah, exactly. And, and and what I love too about this is, um, you know, just I won't say every single, but a very large proportion of the food writing that you, the sort of nutrition writing that you read, um, it it helps promote that idea that sometimes subtly and sometimes not so subtly that because this is good for you, quote unquote, therefore your body will love it and that's what you ought to give your body. And it's almost as though you bypass your own taste preferences. And I, I mean, I also know that my, my body had become addicted to um, high levels of sugar. Um, so there was a, so I had to, I had to navigate that thing between my body kind of going, I crave sugar, but actually saying, yeah, but I'm not really enjoying it. And the fact that I used to be a smoker and I gave it up many, many, many years ago, that helped me to navigate that because my, you know, my, I could tell the difference when I paid attention, I could tell the difference between my body's craving for a cigarette and the part of me that said, I don't really love the taste. I'm not really loving the experience of it. And that was very helpful in, in, navigating this time around where, um, I mean, we, we made the change to our eating, which helped to kick that craving anyway. Um, it's a fantastic, for anybody listening to the recording who's hooked on sugar, let me know <laughs> and I'll give you the name of the book. Um, but it, it was just navigating that and, and, and sort of being willing to go with it until I stabilized. I don't even know that I'm quite there yet. There are still times where we, I'll make something and we try it and we go, it's all right. It's not great. Won't make that again. So there's a there's a lot of. I have to be willing to do trial and error and trust myself a little more than I think I have in the past. Okay. I mean, it's the Oreo question. I hear the Oreo question a lot, and I mean, it comes in the forms of Oreo or whatever. But it's like, yeah, if I eat what I want, if I go with that, I eat mm-hmm. Oreos all day. And the answer to that is no, you wouldn't actually like eating (laughs) eating one oreo is amazing eating two oreos might be great by the fifth oreo you're not really enjoying it the way you did the first you've gone beyond you've gone beyond taste and flavor and the experience of the oreo you're into something else by the end of the bag of oreos that you ate because you thought that's what you wanted you feel like shit so if you're really eating for flavor, you're not going to sustain on a diet of Oreos. At some point, very early on in that process of indulgence, it quits becoming indulgence and it becomes numbing and self-punishing and something else. But you have to be aware enough to know where that line is. And a lot of people don't see it until they're aware past it and they feel like shit. Hmm. Yeah. So it's it's it has it's very nuanced. It's a very much know yourself kind of thing. Yeah, agreed. So I have gone from being vegan, vegetarian, to at one point a poor mother, <laughs> poor white woman that was living and surviving off of packaged, processed foods and canned vegetables to uh, paleo. I mean, I've done everything. And I think I just made P 
piece with my taste buds this year and decided that I would eat what I wanted to when I wanted to. So as an example, for dinner last night, I had some gluten-free crackers because I've learned that gluten and I don't get along great, some uh, local goat cheese, a uh, donut peach, and um, I think I fried up some zucchini with garlic and turmeric. That was my that was my dinner last night. It's honestly just whatever I want at that moment. Sometimes it's homemade salsa and some chips. Which is very different than, I mean, again, like one of the things she talked a lot about was this notion of eating when you're supposed to eat, eating what you are supposed to eat. Like Janet kind of referenced that a little bit. Like it's breakfast, so you eat breakfast foods because it's time. Yeah. And it's lunch, and you eat lunch foods because it's time. And it's, you know, this sort of socially regimented idea about schedule and what's appropriate for different meals. And it's, you know, it's it goes beyond that. Like leaning into taste really means that it's okay to have a peach donut or, you know, a donut peach and some crackers and, like, really... And I think, like, I suspect with a great deal of certainty that body wisdom prevails there. Like, body wisdom, sort of that intuitive eating and taste are very, very closely related when we have detox from sugar or we have gotten past our gluten intolerance or whatever it is. Taste and body intuition have to be really, really, really closely related. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. I love it. I love food. This time of year, especially being in eastern Washington, we have farmers markets and fresh produce, local produce everywhere. So for $20 a week, my refrigerator is full of vegetables. And when I come home, I just say, I wonder what sounds good tonight and what I can do with it. And I'm just very whimsical that way. And it's just a freedom thing. I don't want to be regimented or, or, or stuck or have a book or something tell me eat this much, this many ounces, this much protein. If I if I don't want protein tonight, then I'm you know, I just don't want it. Does that make sense? That's I think it's so freeing. Yeah. The switch for you. It's a huge switch for me. And by the way, yes, you are probably the best vegan cook and to this day. I still make uh, I still make cashew cheese. Yeah, see, I mean, most of it was good, but I spent oh, most of it, some of it was spectacular. But I spent a full year telling myself I loved it in a way that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. It was it was a very it was very functional. I mean, it was very right according to all of the books, but I didn't have a love affair with the food and. When I finally realized that, it came to a full stop. It's like, yeah, like it's not sustainable if I'm not really loving it. And I I still cook a lot of it, but I, you know, it's rare for me. And you know this better than most. I eat steak fairly frequently these days. I think that's brilliant. I remember a day when all you ate was mac and cheese. Spaghetti, girlfriend. A lot of spaghetti. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think when you feel happy and passionate about it, I mean, I sat down, I had my hot cup of tea last night, and I was excited to dig in 
to that goat cheese and that peach. And I was totally satisfied and happy about my little meal, just as much as I would have been if my decision last night was to go out somewhere and have a killer steak. I was happy and felt kind of excited to sit and eat. And I think that's so important when you're dreading eating. We don't want to dread eating. We don't want to dread having to do anything, really. And yet food is one of those things that doesn't go away. Like we have to do it to sustain, and a lot of people do it dreading it anyway. I mean, it just doesn't go away. It's one of the reasons eating disorders are so hard to deal with. Because you're never going to be able to remove yourself from your relationship with food. I just figured, what kind of energy am I putting into the food that I'm going to put in my mouth if I'm, like, Eeyore with it? Like, what kind of energy am I surrounding around me and that food? And then how is that food going to process in my body when I don't even like it? Yeah, I just changed the energy around it. So, Lisa, any thoughts on the food portion of this? Um, yeah, I, I loved your friend's story there. And, um, you know, I, I, it was, uh, you know, an unfortunate situation and, and an awesome situation at the same time. The fact that her instructor in Italy called her little Peggy because, of you know, it was like a catalyst for her. And, you know, and it reminded me of, you know, I had some pretty poor eating habits. I, you know, I guess I just grew up in them. And um, we used to go like every on the, on the weekends, every Sunday, we used to go on this big picnic out at the country club with our friends and we'd all bring all this food. And basically we'd just, we'd sit there like all kinds of food, breakfast food, lunch food, and tons, tons of sweets and fruit too. Um, and then we were there at, at July 6th, July 6th, 1980, I remember. And there was, it's just like, it just hit me that day that if I continue, because I went and I ate like everybody else did, because that's what everybody did. And it just hit me later that night that if I continued doing that, I was going to look like them. I was going to look like my mother and her friends. And I was, um, what, 20 years old, I think. And, and I just, like like your friend in the in her story there, she just like said she wasn't going to eat. I swore off on that day, that next day, July seventh, nineteen eighty. I swore off cake, cookies, candy, and ice cream, donuts, pie, all that stuff. And I still haven't had it, other than the ice cream. That's you know every now and then I'll have ice cream, and I don't miss it. And 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 so like at first it might have been hard for a little bit, um, but I was somebody who was like. You know, like talk about Oreos. I mean, that was my thing, Oreos, like eight or 12 at a time, Dunkin' Milk, you know, it was my pleasure. Um, you know, when my when I decided to do this, I told my grandmother, please don't make me that chocolate cake every week that you would bring over. And, you know, you know, that's how they show their love. So she continues bringing the cake. And, uh, and so I learned to appreciate the smell of that chocolate cake. And so every day until it was gone, because uh, I had, a, we were, I was part of a large family, so everybody else would eat it too. But I would just pick it up and smell it, and just really appreciate it, and then put it down. And so I, I really changed my relationship with the sweets. It's not like I swore off sugar; I just swore off those sweets that, at that time, I felt I had no control over. 
Um, and what was interesting was when I, um, so 1987, when I became pregnant with my son, I had some issues in the beginning and I was losing weight. And so they took me out of work, put me on bed rest and said, you know, you got to gain some weight. And so I was like, it was, it was uh, Christmas cookie season. So I'm like, okay, I'll eat some Christmas cookies. I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I don't, I don't like them. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, we're in the food business here. My husband and I, you know, we're, we do food. That's what we do. And so I, I thought about lot. you actually because of that. Like you have a uniquely specific perspective on this because you are in the food business or have yeah. been. I, and we, we, he brings home all kinds of foods before they hit the shelves. So we, we try them here. I cook them. Um, we have, my husband is gluten-free. One of my kids is gluten-free. Another one's vegan. So, I mean, I cook a lot and I cook a wide variety and I eat what I want to eat. You know, I don't, I don't eat what they eat unless it's something that I really want, but I really do. I, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it's because I started this like so young, like I said, I was 20, but I feel like I have a really good grip on this food and I really only eat what I want and what, what tastes good, tastes good to me, you know? And it's not a it's not a problem for me, but it's I can't I know for a long time I did things another way, and I just I can't imagine doing that anymore. Because I I think more so than the like I can look at a food and as good as it looks, I can really appreciate it like that. But I can I can simultaneously know what it's going to feel like inside my body, and if and if does, if I can't imagine it feeling good, then why why ingest it? So because I just have so many I can remember what it felt like. I really can. I don't want to do that. I mean, for you, I think that's probably the fact that that happened so early and the fact mm-hmm. that we're in the food business, it, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a gift, really, because a lot of it people is. would have struggled with that. Yeah, well, we weren't in the food yeah. business then, but, you know, and I, plus, you know, I have my mother, you know, well, well we have, her maiden name was DeSantis, and it's like, well, we all have the DeSantis size, you know, and I was, I was the bigger, I was the bigger cousin. You know, I was, I was, you know, we all got together. I was always the bigger one. I was the heftier one. And I was like, you know, I was destined to have the DeSanta size. And I'm like, you know, no, I'm not. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not. It, you know, I just like when I was reading your friend's story, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you. I can resonate with that. You know, so, yeah. And like you say, we got to eat. We got, you know, that's that's one thing when we're in the food business, you know, when the economy is going down, it's like, well, people got to eat. So, the, you know, the sales don't usually fluctuate that much. It's, it's fascinating how, I mean, I, it broke my heart the other day. Chris, have you ever met David's mom or sister? Yes, very briefly once. Yeah, there's a body type, right? Oh, yeah. On the the female side of my husband's family, and it's not small. But, but, I mean, it is a body type. Like, they are all built that way, as my grandmother used to say, very sturdy. Very, very, very sturdy women. I like that. Um, David's sister has, I mean, both of them, David's mom right now is on a crazy restricted doctor-supervised diet. So I had no idea how much she actually weighed until she went on this diet, and it was quite a bit. David's sister has struggled all her life with um, 
weight to the point where she's now, she's had two gastric surgeries. And David saw them last week or two weeks ago for a birthday party and said Karen was the heaviest he had ever seen her. Um, so, I mean, it's a thing. And David's niece, who we have not been particularly close to, is just turned 18 and is just kind of at that pivotal point where she's beginning to start her life away from home. In fact, she's been away from home for a while, but she's coming home again at the end of this month. And I rarely speak to her. We are not particularly close. And I noticed a few weeks ago she's been all over my Facebook page, which is unusual. And she emailed me a few days ago and asked, said, you know, I don't have money to join your program, but, you know, until I can, which, of course, I added her on a couple of different programs that I offer, And her biggest question, the thing that she is suffering with the most right now, is how do I avoid looking like mom and grandma? So that, you know, that family thing you just referenced about size, it's like here we have an 18-year-old girl who has grown up in a lineage of food that is really dysfunctional. And her primary focus at this point is how do I avoid looking like them, which is ironic to me because Everybody in that family suffers with depression. I mean, the question wasn't how do I avoid feeling like that. It was how do I avoid looking like that. And I'm mm-hmm. still trying to figure out how to respond to that question. I don't, I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. Well, she doesn't have to avoid it, right, if she's, if she's going to look like her, right? I mean, she can deliberately become her. Create something different, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I, if I may, I kind of understand that to, and like the opposite end of it. My, we see you've met my mother, my sister. They have both struggled with weight um, their entire life. Start well, starting at about age 25, for them both, that's when they gained considerable amount of weight. So starting at about age 20, I was consistently told by my mom. You better watch what you're doing now. You better watch what you're doing now. You better. Lisa can contest. I'm not a really big person. I mean, I'm five one if I jump, and I usually stay at about 127 pounds. And um, but I think because of that consistent message, I think that's why I spent my entire life studying what am I supposed to eat. Whatever they told you on the media, whatever you're supposed to do. I did. Whatever they said don't do, I didn't do because I was trying to avoid that thing and I had to change that belief. I had to, I had to rewrite that story. That makes sense. And maybe that's all she needs to do is rewrite the story. And the story is I don't have to have my mother's lineage or my grandmother's lineage. I get to have my own. I get to, cho- I get to choose what my body is, what it looks like, and how I relate to it. Does that make sense? Well, it makes total sense. And if anybody, if anybody listening to this call or on the call or what have you wants to coach Sarah Rose for free because she has no money, I have no business coaching this girl. She's too close to home. Mm-hmm. And those are the kinds of things that she's going to have to learn. And they're the kinds of things that we all navigated at some point or are navigating over and over again. It's that story around food, which separates us completely and totally from the actual experience.
experience of being with our food. Yes, yeah. So, okay, let's do another round of exploration here. I think the thing that comes to the top for me with this story, like I said, goes beyond food. Like once she learned to be that discriminating about what she put in her mouth, and I mean this sounds so elementary, and it's not, and the level that she takes it to is like very pro-gear. I mean it's, it's somewhere near Buddha enlightenment on this particular issue. Once she figured out what, what it meant to have discerning taste, what it meant to only choose for herself what really, really delights her, what it meant to be able to say no to things that were ordinary or subpar or not fantastic, she very naturally rolled that out into almost every element of her life. And I mean, that sounds like an Oprah article, like you totally could probably find some sort of an Oprah thing on that somewhere. But I think very few people actually get that. I mean, I don't get it as well as I would like to. That willingness and ability to be that dedicated to the extraordinary on every level and really with every detail of my life. What she learned in food and was able to roll that out to the broader picture, again, when you look at it, it's amazing, amazing. And I, I'm not complaining about my life. I've had an amazing life. It's wonderful. It looks good. It feels good. It's great. But I think I could benefit from up-leveling it by being much more discerning with my taste. So, Janet, go. Oh, definitely. Um, yes, all of what you said. <laughs> um, what's interesting for me is uh, I'm so aware that there is still such a gap between... Um, no, sorry, I'll rephrase that. Um, I think I said earlier, I, I, I'm recognising the difference between my body craving sugar and uh, like the, the way that I'm eating at the moment... I like after I get off the call, I'll be making breakfast and it will be bacon with um, waffles and fruit sauce and whipped cream. <laughs> so I'm not, which I love, it's one of my favorite breakfasts. I'm not, um, I've moved beyond denying myself. I've definitely made that sort of, um, you know, that I've, I've closed that gap. I'm not denying myself uh, what I like anymore and I think that the next step is to become even more proactive about figuring out what I do love um, and I also I'm aware that there are you know that the, the 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 other part of this is if you're the if you're the, the chef for the household um, there is that sense of okay I'm going to create food that I love I can't do this work from the inside of anybody else in my house. I can only go by what they tell me and, and the evidence of what they will eat. So, um, and I and there's a limit to how many different variations I'm prepared to 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 do for any meal that I'm preparing. Um, so there's a bit of navigating with that as well in terms of 
how this unfolds on a practical level. And I'm not yet sure... I'm not yet sure that my connection to what I love is strong enough to overcome the sense of, um, well, my husband doesn't like X, Y, and Z, so I never make that. Because what's the point of making it just for one person? Which is obviously a wrong question to ask. But, yeah, so there's, there's still there's some nuances to that I haven't quite figured out. The, the, how, to, how to fill the gap between... It sounds great in theory and, yes, but how do I do that in practice? I mean, it's okay. It's not that hard for me. There's only two of us in the house. But I would imagine for somebody who's got to navigate, like my mum had a household of, what, well, his mum, dad, three kids and my, and my grandmother, all with different tastes. And her solution was to just cook about 10 different vegetables and have them all sitting on the table as in serving platters and you help yourself, which was fine except... That sounds like a hell of a lot of work to me, and 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 I wonder how this unfolds for somebody who's got really fussy. We weren't that fussy, but somebody who's got really fussy eaters to to, to navigate for as well. It's a lot. I mean, I am the chef for mm. one person most of the time. I mean, fortunately, we, I don't know. Kingston kind of he's sort of free range right now. He eats what he wants when he wants at this point and I'm fine with that but it is a lot and I think you know the larger question is how do we incorporate this taste issue beyond just the food how do we incorporate it into the larger scope of our lives beyond just what we're eating but everything in our lives being that discerning and you're in an interesting spot Janet and Chris is a little bit ahead of you on the same path I mean you're you're in sort of an evolution of what your life mm. looks like. Do you feel like you are being as discerning with your taste in your life at large as you would like to be? I would say I would say no, and I'm much more discerning than I used to be, and I'm not about to start beating myself up because I haven't got there yet. So, you know, we 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 sold the house, we've made made the move. We we haven't. We haven't finished the move. We, you know, this isn't where we're going to be forever. Um, and the shift in terms of, you know, that I talked about before, where, okay, I've found a, I've found a way of eating that helps me over, that that helped me break the sugar addiction. That's great. And now I'm at the point where I'm still using that approach to food, but now I'm making sure it's things we actually like. Um, uh, and. So that's another improvement. So I can see my progress on the journey and there is a part of me that's kind of quite capable of self-flagellating and saying, you haven't got it right yet and I'm not I'm not prepared to engage that. <laughs> Just not, that's not useful. Engage that, actually. That's a good thing. So, Christina, case larger, how do you, how do you feel about just like the, the the larger, broader scope of up-leveling and being more discerning with your tastes and your life in general. Did you say me, Lisa? I did. Oh, okay, just want to make sure. Um, actually, it's, it's actually kind of funny. This is the subject today. So on my vlog that I have, I started a series called The Top Five Ways to Stay Stuck. The first was 
um, to keep repeating your story. Today, the second way was to actually have faith and belief in that story. And I was making tomorrow's um, basically not having any discernment. In other words, just if you want to eat crap, eat crap. If you want to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, do it. If you want to drink a case of beer, just go for it. And so I think it's kind of funny we're talking about discernment because that's actually, again, one of the talks I was going to either give tomorrow or the following day. I'm one of the ways to stay stuck, and I think it is. I think uh, I'm getting better, a lot better in so many different areas. I'm sure I have room for improvement, but I think every day I have less tolerance, and please excuse my French here, but I think every day I have less tolerance for bullshit, and I think my intolerance for bullshit is actually me getting more finite about what it is I'm willing to do and receive than I was the day before. Does that make sense? As I fine-tune that, I don't have tolerance for anything less than my expectations. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's, and it's I mean, expectations. I just can say it's not that I expect others to act a certain way, do a certain thing, be a certain thing. That's not what it is. But I have a large expectation for what I deserve and what I'm willing to put in my life, whether that's what I read, what I what I listen to, what TV shows I watch, what I put in my body, and definitely the people I surround myself with. And as I, as I get more clear about that, things start to drop off from those lists that don't meet those desires. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. So I'm getting there. I think those are two ways to stay stuck. Janet's way to stay stuck would be beating yourself up for not being where you want to be. And yeah. this is way to stay stuck. One of her ways to stay stuck would be not not demanding more quality from yourself, for lack of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. So, Lisa, thoughts on letting taste, like refining your taste, upgrading your taste, and letting that define things beyond your food. You um, think is somebody who probably kind of rolls by that compass pretty naturally. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, I think I'm pretty good about about that, but I think, you know, there's always room where I can have, I don't know, I mean, I think my taste is good, like following what I know my taste is, like, um, so like I wear like very basic makeup, like so I probably don't even look like I have much makeup on. I could probably look a lot nicer when I go out if I had more makeup on. So when we had the baby's um, uh, baptism a couple of weeks ago, um, her other grandmother uh, came up, came and she's like ten years older than me. She's stunning, and I'm not comparing myself to her at all. But she like really did her makeup really nicely, and you know because I had seen her like the day before and she didn't have her makeup on, then I saw her that day and. Like, wow, she really looks nice with her makeup. I should really take some time um, and do my makeup. And I'm just, I'm not. (laughs) It's like, like, oh, that would involve going to the store and, you know, asking someone to help me. I might get somebody that doesn't really, uh, that I don't care for her style. And so I'm like, you know, I haven't quite done that yet. So, I mean, I think maybe I I could, there's there's things I could do, you know, with my taste. um, But I'm not doing them. I guess it's just not important to me when it is. When I have a function that I really want to look great, I'll go do it. 
and I'll make sure I get referrals and go find somebody good. But just, you know, now I guess I'm just, and you know what, and, but I guess that's pretty good because I, I'm not like uncomfortable. I, I go out, I wear what I wear and I, I think I look good. <laughs> so, but I guess when I'm ready to look better, I'll, I'll do it. And I think it comes down to settling or not settling. And I mean, I'll be honest, when I look around my life, my house particularly, I think of it more really in terms of how it affects my space and food, all of it. I probably settle more than I'm actually comfortable with. I've got some room to upgrade in terms of being true to what my tastes and preferences really would be because I do do settle for what's here, what's easily available, what can be done without much effort, I settle more than I should. I mm-hmm. am going to own that publicly and commit to upgrading that significantly. So any final thoughts on all of this before we call I, it a wrap for the day? I do. I, I actually loved what Lisa said about the makeup thing. I love that. Only because mm-hmm. I do the same thing but just the opposite. Again, I don't know what happened to me this year. My butterfly wings came out. It, Lisa can confirm that I would not leave the house without full makeup on. I wouldn't go take out the trash. And my, my pajamas had to be coordinated. And um, I worked in makeup for years, so this was really ingrained in my head. And I saw this lady named Cindy Johnson, I think her name is, or Cindy Joseph or someone. Anyway, she has this makeup line called Boom. And it's like all natural organic. There's three things you put on your face, and it just makes you look like you just kind of came out of the sun. It makes you look glowy. And I thought, I'm just going to try it. And anybody that knows me to leave the house without full foundation, concealer, highlighter, contour, you name it. And I left the house wearing three products, horrified, horrified, and got more compliments. And I have loved it. I have loved the simplification and the easiness of my own skin. So I love that. I love that you're like, I'll do it when I have an event. Otherwise, I like me. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, And I would like to look the way the baby's other grandmother looked sometime. And when I'm ready for that, I'll go do it. (laughs) Exactly. But until it it takes a lot of work. And until then, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. It does, but yeah, I wasn't always this easy going about it either. I think when I was younger, I did care more, and now I'm like, you know what? I think I look damn good for my age, just like this. Oh, so, I love that. You know? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Would you? Could you do me a favor and and post a link to that Cindy Johnson makeup? Yeah. So natural, like that might be that might be my answer. Uh, if maybe that's yeah, what I, want. I would be happy to do that. It's Thank you. I absolutely love it, and I have psoriasis. I have to be very careful with what I use. It feels amazing on your skin. It's inexpensive, and I'm in love with it. I'm absolutely in love with it. I will never stop putting on eyebrows because I was cursed with, like, no eyebrows, so I draw them on every day. But honestly, Mm -hmm. other than that and mascara, that's that's my advice. Other than that, it's me, and it's just I really honor for you for following that. I think that's awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I agree. And I'm curious about the makeup, too. Yeah, good. Janet, do you have any final thoughts 
before we call it a day? Did we lose Janet? Janet already gone? Oh, got it. Yeah, she's here, but she's out sort of. So, yeah, that's it. Um, next week we're going to transition to sleep, my favorite topic. Mm. Such as I hated, I hated, <laughs> hated talking about water and really kind of enjoy talking about food. Sleep, I, it's my favorite thing. But, but a lot of really interesting sleep stuff come out recently, like the field and the study of sleep has really evolved in the last two or three years massively. I think. Have you guys followed Aria? Yeah, no, I, uh, she's got she's got a book out about that. I was just wondering if you were going to bring that up. I didn't read her book. But is it good? I haven't read it either. I am going to read it this weekend because it is, I would say that Ariana Huffington has revolutionized like one woman's voice and knowing who she is in the world, that her thing would be sleep, like not politics, not, you know, news. She's the ultimate sort of curator of news stories. And that the thing that she has come out and had such an impact on is this conversation around sleep and rest. It's it's really incredible. I mean, but I she's sort of primed a larger conversation about sleep and sleep science and all of that that wasn't available before. So I am going to read it this weekend. And next week we are going to start unpacking sleep. Hmm. I'm excited. Okay. So let's. I will, I will try to make it. All right. I'm, just say I'm thrilled to hear your voice. I love you. I love you. You both have a good right. night. Talk to you. Talk to you Thanks, later. ladies. Have a good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.